Well, I've wanted to speak on this subject matter for quite some time, and I'm really delighted that I'm able to do so tonight. These are two aspects of my relationship with God, one which I find incredibly rewarding, which is his presence. And many of us find being in God's presence incredibly rewarding. That'll be three of us then. That's really good. Any advance on three? Perhaps we've got a four over here in the cheap seats of five. Okay, that's really good. God's presence is his manifest reality here on earth. And everything that heaven affords us is found as we meet with him in his presence. All of the beauty of God, all of the glory of God, all of the power of God becomes available to us as we become the kind of people who are desirous for and seekers of the presence of God. It's more than a soundbite or a song. It's a reality. The kingdom has come amongst his people. And the king amongst that kingdom awakens us to life. And you can't be in God's presence and and truly stay the same. There is something about God's nature and character in his presence that changes us from the inside out. And I love his presence. I crave his presence. In fact, just about in every manner of my life, I'm looking for him in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of places, in all kinds of situations, because I believe that when I discover where he is, I find out where I should be. When I recognize what he's doing, that's what I should be doing. I want to be the kind of person that doesn't just enjoy his presence, but actually allows his presence to direct me, allows the spirit to lead me to the places and the people and the things that God has in store for me. But I won't get to that place without practicing his presence. I need to abide in his goodness. I need to allow that goodness to so marinate my soul that actually it changes my disposition. How many of us need our disposition changed? I can see your faces. How many of us need our disposition changed? Yes, we need to be the kind of people that are so infected with God's goodness that actually everywhere we go, that goodness begins to turn up. So I'm a real lover of the presence of God. In fact, it's the priority to me in every gathering, and it's actually the priority to me in every scattering. Everywhere I go, I want to discover God. But I love it when God comes amongst his people. And we're very, very blessed here in this church to have the kind of people that can host the presence of God. We have a wonderful worship team. Don't you want to thank them with me, church? The other aspect that I want to speak about tonight is prayer. How many of us love prayer? Now, tell the truth, please. How many of us love prayer? Do, do you, like me, have a love-hate relationship with prayer? <laughs> you know, some days I'm, I'm, I'm all over it, and I really feel there's a real sense of, of you know, um, authority in my prayer life. And other times it feels like the heavens are as brass. And sometimes I feel the the manifest presence of God and I can really pray whenever I feel God's presence. I feel energized by his presence. And there's other times that he feels like a thousand miles away. I know it's not him, it's definitely me. But the reality is there seems to be this toing and froing. I call it the rhythm of hiddenness and manifestation. Sometimes God is just very visible and very tangible whenever we're praying with him, whether we're being relationship with him, conversing with him, engaging with him, tabernacling with him. And other times he just chooses, for whatever reasons, to keep himself hidden from us. Now, I used to believe that he hid from me I actually started to believe many years ago that he hides for me. In other words, if I'm not able to connect with him, it's not that God has abandoned me. He's actually moving somewhere that he wants me to rediscover what it is to walk with him towards something fresh and something new. How many of us know that on uh, in your childhood, there would be times whenever you would, if you're anything like me, go hunting for your Christmas presents? Three people over here are awake. Up in the balcony, did you go hunting for your Christmas presents? You were all good people. 
I'm not sure I believe that. I'm not sure I believe that. Well, you know, what happens is sometimes you're hunting for your Christmas presents whenever you kind of move past those wonderful days of believing certain things. And, and you start to want to find them before the day. And I used to be, I'm a very nosy person. You'll probably figure that out eventually. I wanted to go and find them. I wanted to find them, you know. And my mom and dad, they didn't have a huge amount of space to hide things in. And I thought I knew every single place where they would hide things. And the reason I thought I knew them is because I had found things there. Over the years, I had found certain things there. And there was one Christmas when I was really intent about trying to find this present that I believed that they were going to get me. In fact, I thought I caught a glimpse of it one day coming into our family home. And uh, I knew it was there somewhere, but I couldn't quite find it. And I searched everywhere that I knew. I searched all of the places that I had found and discovered things in before to discover actually on the night before Christmas Eve that actually it was under my bed. I feel that God, he's such a a joyous God and such a a God of fun and and, and such a desire in his heart to engage with us and the, the discovery of who he is that sometimes he hides things, not from us. He hides things for us. And somehow in the journey to seek out and to search for the treasure that he affords us, we actually become friends with God, partners in the adventure fellow sojourners with him to bring our lives to a place where we discover his nature and his character. So I have a love-hate relationship with prayer. I love it sometimes and sometimes I'm really, really driven to distraction because I don't seem to have the same sense of energy or vitality to it, but I love his presence. And tonight I want to talk to you about the partnership of both those dynamics. What does it look like for us to pray and to connect with God in the realities of his presence in our lives. And so to do that, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Perhaps you could get your Bible out for us. There are a number of things that come to mind whenever I discuss or talk on a subject like this. And the first one is this, that sometimes there are two types of people in our world, two types of Christian postures, if you like, whenever we are engaging with the reality of our world. And how many of us recognize that the reality of our world is fastly becoming more violent? You know, when I was a child, you would turn on the television. Yes, we did have televisions. I heard you say that, someone. Turn on the television set. And you know, perhaps once a year, there would be this major incident throughout the world that people would be really rallying to. But actually, it seems like every five minutes, You turn on the television, something is happening somewhere to some people and it's absolutely life-changing and devastating. I found over the Christmas time, I, I couldn't believe that some people were, you know, stabbed in Manchester. There's a young man, I think, stabbed on a... On, on the streets here in London again and somebody else stabbed on a train. I'm never going on the train. Who comes on the train? Get a car. Nowhere is safe. No one is safe. And when we're a Christian, we start to look at that stuff and there's two things that come to mind. We either do what I call denial where we live in the fantasy, where we say all these things and make all these declarations that God is good and they're true, but actually it's it's almost like we're trying to hide ourselves from the shocking reality of the world in which we're living in. I call it the fantasy of faith. 
You know, sometimes I'm praying for people and they're in denial about the fact that they've got cancer. They don't want to admit that the reality of that is happening to them. So they say all these things. They call it faith, but actually it's fantasy. I've learned that God is in the midst of my reality. I don't have to be a fantasist. My hope isn't that he is coming. My hope is in that he has already come. And then there's the other group of people, and I call them the cynics. You know, how many of us know that it's really difficult not to become cynical? I'm not looking at anyone in particular, but it's really difficult not to become cynical. And when you're a child, you're so energized by life and so optimistic and so full of hope and something happens to us along the journey. Whether we're believers in Christ or not, sometimes we get a little bit jaded, a little bit cynical about things. I've even found myself when I'm working with my colleagues in the ministry, some of them are probably more cynical than they realize. They call it wisdom. You know, and in some deacons meetings, you're trying to move a church forward and we're talking about, you know, God is asked of us to, to stretch ourselves to a certain capacity. And there's always the one voice, the voice they call of reason. Ah, but. If you're hanging around with somebody who says, ah, but a lot of times, you're going to start to be infected by what's not possible. You're going to start to be caught up in cynicism. How many of us know that logic and reason are subordinate to faith and hope? Because sometimes God invites us to something that in the natural realm looks absolutely impossible. So there are two types of people in the world today, in the Christian church. There are those who are um, fantasists who, you know, try and blot out the noise of pain by singing and shouting and declaring all these things. And then there's the other extreme, which is people who are full of doubt and, and anxiety and concern and cynicism. And if I had to choose between the categories, I would choose to be on the fantasist side of things. And I, the reason I would choose to be there is because I want to live consistently with an optimistic heart. I want to be hope-filled and hope-led, not hopeless. Now you get to decide which one you want to identify with the most. But my recommendation is that neither is particularly helpful. But we have this wonderful, glorious truth that no matter how bleak it gets, God is good. No matter how difficult this world is to navigate, God is good. Now that for me seems like a good balance and indeed a very positive way to, to lead my life. And so... When I've been praying for people, in fact, we prayed for a young lady today. I think you're back here tonight. She had an arthritic knee and was in a lot of pain. And we prayed for her. And you know, it's very visible on her face and in her body language and her posture that she was in a huge amount of pain. And the reality is she wasn't faking it or making it worse than it looked. She genuinely was trying to subdue the pain. And when we prayed for her, the power of the Holy Spirit, this lady over here, came and touched her knee and she got set free from the pain of arthritis. <clears throat> Why? Because the pain is real. Her body is struggling. Her soul is probably following suit. But God is good. God is good in the midst of the reality that we face day by day. 
When we turn on the news and we see all that we see, we must never be paralyzed by that. In fact, I'm hoping by the end of tonight we'll be energized by that because the reality is what we're seeing is the end of an era and the return of Jesus Christ. And so we should as Christians not be paralyzed by what's going on in our world. We should be energized to seek his presence and to pray alongside God for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. So Ephesians 6, we're going to read from verse 10. I'm going to do the best I can. You know, I'm pressing through a very serious illness tonight. It's called man flu. Now, ladies, please keep your sympathy to yourself. (laughs) Ephesians 6, verse 10. Paul says, and finally. Now, can I just say that Paul is not saying this is my final thought. What he is actually saying to us is from this point onwards. In other words, let this be the posture of your heart and your life forevermore. He's saying, here's what I want your disposition to look like. As you lean with your heart towards the future, be strong. Now the word here for strength is not something that's going to come to us. It's something that we can put on. It's not... you know, um, an invisible realm that comes down upon us. It's something that we have to work with God to achieve. And I think sometimes we read this scripture and we'll get to some other things in a minute and we're missing some of the great nuances of what Paul is trying to teach a group of people in a very difficult time how to operate and live with the reality that they're facing but with a clarity about the God that they're serving. And finally, be strong, strengthen yourself in the Lord. In other words, have courage that God is who he says he is and he will do what he promised he would do. Be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Now, Paul has used these words and this phrase in various parts of his writing in the New Testament. And basically what he's saying is this, make sure that you abide in the strength, power, and reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Make sure that that's your posture, that that's your abiding place, that that's your reality here on the earth. And then he goes on to say, put on the full armor of God. Now here's what I've listened to for years as a Christian. People tend to stop and focus on the word full at the expense of not recognizing that we're invited to not worry about the the, the shoes of peace or the the belt or the breastplate. Those are not the big deal here. What Paul is saying to us simply is this. Fix your eyes on the greatness, the goodness, the power and the glories of God. To be strong in the Lord and His mighty power will need us to have a posture of heart, an inclination, and indeed a desire to focus on the realities of God. And he uses a phrase elsewhere that actually sums up what he's trying to say to us here. He says, clothe yourself with Christ. In other words, immerse yourself. Submit yourself. Surrender yourself in the fullness of the presence 
and the reality of Christ. When I think of God's presence, I realize that I'm invited to a place of safety. It's not always easy to access God's presence for me. Maybe you find it easier. But the difficulty I have is I, I'm a, a terrible, terrible thinker. Now, what I mean is I don't think terrible things. Don't get worried. I'm not judging anybody or having thoughts that are not glorious to God. But I'm, I'm cr- incredibly analytical about all kinds of things. And sometimes I can so easily have a posture in the presence of God of a spectator. And as a pastor, I've learned to enjoy watching God move on other people. And it's really great to be in an environment where people are hungry for his presence. But actually, I'm not called either to be a spectator or even just a facilitator of what God is doing for other people. As good as those two things are, I'm meant to be somebody that is immersed in the presence of God myself. And and I've noticed here that sometimes there's a little bit of a struggle to be able to access that. I've noticed that some people are trying to access it through many words and intentionalities and strivings. You can't enter the presence of God through striving because what you're invited to is the glorious place of abiding. What needs to happen is we need to submit and surrender and receive from him. And as we do that, we come under the mantle of his presence. We come under the glorious, glorious fullness of his goodness. So Paul is saying, in the midst of a world where things are hard, God is good. And if you're going to survive this world and thrive in this world, you need to submit and submerge yourself in the fullness of Christ. You need to clothe yourself with Christ. It's not about the shoes or the belt or any of those things. It's simply about submitting to and abiding in who Christ truly is. Now, I'm not a great student of war, but I understand that there is a tactic in war where it's called the shock and awe tactic, where an enemy will bombard an individual or a a group of people or a situation with as much artillery as he could possibly muster up. And what happens is that that person who's being attacked becomes so acutely aware of his adversary that he starts to get paralyzed and starts to become vulnerable to the warfare that's taking place around his life. And, you know, the enemy's tactics have never changed. Many of us have become paralyzed by his attacks on our lives. The enemy is desperate to do a number of things. He's trying to steal your identity. He's trying to take away what actually you give to God, which is your faith, hope, and love. He's trying to bombard you with all manner of things. And one of the things I'm aware of as the times move forward is that more and more people sense that they're in this war zone where the enemy is coming in like a flood, where all kinds of situations and circumstances are coming against us as individuals. And of course, his tactics are as they have always been, and that is to draw attention away from God and onto him. 
And if you know the story of how Satan was cast out of heaven, that's exactly the reason why that happened, because he was wanting adoration. He was wanting the affection of those in the heavenlies. He wanted what Jesus Christ truly deserved, and he was cast away from heaven down to the earth, to roam in the, in the, in the skies above the earth, to affect people with his displeasure regarding God. So be careful when you find yourself bombarded that you're not distracted by the enemy. It's good to know your enemy. It's good to know his tactics. But the truth is this. You will never win the war, the battle for your life, the battle for your destiny, the battle for your future by being a great strategist as far as your enemy is concerned, not in spiritual terms. Here's how we win the war. Here's how we get the breakthrough. Here's how we get to another level. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to be aware of the enemy, but we need to be in awe of who Jesus is. The best thing you could do in any battle, and I encourage you to do this, is worship God. In fact, worship is God's preferred weapon of warfare in just about every environment or situation. We find there's something about worship that takes me out of impossibility and into possibility that takes me away from my troubles to his triumphs. There's something about worship that moves me from a preoccupation with my brokenness to a place where I am besotted by his beauty. There's something about worship that elevates my mind, my spirit, my heart above my circumstances where I get to abide with Christ in heavenly places. And sometimes I was praying with somebody today and I say this to you respectfully and you can have your own opinions on it. That's great. But sometimes the breakthrough that we're expecting to see God do in our lives doesn't just come through hard line prayer. Sometimes you need to worship your way into your future. You need to war, worshipfully war your way through into a place of God's presence. You need to Step beyond the, the current reality into the real reality that God is good and he will do what he promised he will do. Sometimes all I need to do is worship. All I need to do is say his name out loud. All I need to do is fix my eyes on Jesus. He's my crown. Sometimes I can't get through by prayer alone. So we continue reading. Paul says, put on the full armor. And the emphasis is on God. Submerge yourself. Position yourself. Posture your heart. Incline who you are to discovering him and abiding in him. Focus your mind on his goodness and his greatness, his power and his glory, his authority. Because he's already conquered death, sin and hell. We don't need to pay attention to those things that drag us back to that kind of orientation. We need to, to fill our hearts and lives and minds and souls and spirits with the reality of who God truly is. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand. And notice that this warfare is not about activity. It's about standing firmly in the reality of who God is. 
To take our stand is simply to say, I know where the truth lies here. To take our stand is simply to say, I know that my circumstances tell me one thing, but my revelation of God tells me another thing. And when I stand, I stand in the reality of what Christ has accomplished for me. I stand in the posture of a son, not a slave, trying to earn something from his master. I stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not my righteousness. I stand with joy and hope and peace because the reality of God is far greater than the circumstances of my life. I'm enjoying myself tonight. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And his schemes are pretty clear to us. And look what it says here. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Church, I don't know how many times I thought my enemy came in human form. And the trouble with that, the trouble with that, that short-sightedness is that I end up doing battle with a brother or a sister or a family member, or a stranger in the queue who pushed in front of me. If I have my eyes on that which is earthly, it's pretty difficult for me to see that which is heavenly. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the rulers, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And this is how Paul is now teaching the Ephesian church in the middle of terrible circumstances how to live in the reality of Christ. Put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows. What are the flaming arrows of the enemy? Intimidation, sealing your identity and ruining your expectancy of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And can I just highlight to you that last little phrase? That little phrase, Ephesians 6.18 came to me by the Holy Spirit probably, I would say, about 20 years ago when I was battling to be free from certain things and trying to discover God in my life. God told me that my battle was not against the things that I thought it was. It was against principalities and powers. And the only way to deal with the supernatural realm is by the supernatural means by which God has given us. You can't deal with the supernatural realm by natural effort and human endeavor. You can only take down principalities and powers by, by Holy Spirit, clarity and reality. And it seems to me that sometimes praying in the Spirit at all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests seems to have been given as an assignment to those we call intercessors. And actually, I would like to suggest to you that this isn't written with just intercessors in mind. This is a group of people in a terrible time in history trying to work out the realities of God. This is accessible to all people who belong to Christ. This is available to anybody who desires. Who desires to pray at all times in the Spirit with all kinds of prayers and longings? The answer to that question should be all of us. 
Because you know our battle isn't occasional, it's persistent. And our advancement will only become permanent when we start to work with the incredible gift of the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to pray in the Spirit at all times? It basically is to clothe yourself with the fullness of Christ and allow the Spirit of God to direct you in those moments. We, we call ourselves Pentecostals and please God, truly, we, we must surely endeavor to be so. But actually, the gifts of the Spirit are not just for moments in our lives. The Holy Spirit hasn't come to us for the occasional miracle. It hasn't been given to us just to help us to witness to a friend or a family member. He has made his home in our lives. He is your consistent companion. The Holy Spirit knows everything about everything and he's chosen to live in you and he's chosen to live in me. We sometimes try and make the Holy Spirit do things and actually the opposite must be true. We should allow the Holy Spirit to teach us how to do certain things. We can't say that we're led by the Spirit and be led by everything else but the Spirit and then occasionally want the Holy Spirit to come and do something for us. We must learn on a day-to-day -day basis to stay in step with the Spirit's voice, to allow the Spirit to abide in us fully and to be conscious of His presence as a new reality here in the midst of all that we have, which is adversity. God is not a high day and holiday God. He's an all day, every day God. He lives in you and He's with you. So what does it mean for us to pray in the Spirit at all times? Well, I think it's basically this. Don't believe the fake news that you hear all around you. Allow the Holy Spirit to remind you of truth. There is fake news everywhere, isn't there? On our television screens, in our families, people are saying all kinds of things about all kinds of things. And if we're not careful, our truth gets lost amongst what people prefer as their position of truth. Only the Holy Spirit can reveal truth to us. He reveals to us that Jesus is our righteousness. And the reason why he does that is because if he didn't, we might stop believing we were righteous ourselves. The Holy Spirit reminds us that God is faithful to us. And when you have that kind of reality in the Holy Spirit, you start to understand that he doesn't abandon and he doesn't forsake us because God would have to undo some things that are very precious to him to leave you in your life. So when Paul is inviting us to pray in the Spirit of all times, he's inviting us to rest in the presence and the companionship of the one who remains with us consistently. Rest in the nature of God. The Holy Spirit is God, and when we pray in the Spirit, we are resting in his nature. We are resting in the reality of God. When I live with that reality, I find some things start to happen for me. And I want to share just a couple of stories with you to show you what I mean by that. For me to rest in the reality of God, the first thing I want to highlight to you is this. 
It means that I don't have to make anything happen. Church, do you realize how liberating that is? Do you ever feel sometimes when you're faced with a problem that you've got to rise up and do something? You're the one who walks with God. You should have the answers. You're the person who needs to resolve. You know, I think sometimes we're so obsessed with trying to lead in a moment, we've forgotten how to follow. If there's anyone in any conversation that has the answer to the problem that you're facing, it's the Holy Spirit. You don't have to make anything happen. In fact, I would suggest that you don't. You might get in the way of what God wants to see happen. Having been involved in all kinds of things where people consider themselves prophetic, I've noticed a couple of things about that whole area of ministry. And the one thing I'd say about people who have prophetic gifts is they always think that what they've got to do has to happen now. There's an urgency that comes with a, with a revelation that makes it feel like it's got to happen now. And I would suggest to people who carry these revelations and experience these revelations to stand back a little bit and ask some questions. Just because God is showing you something about something doesn't mean you have to act upon it. And if you do have to act upon it, don't presume that the act you're about to do is the one that he wants you to do. Get into a conversation. Start asking God, how would you like me? You've shown this to me, Father. How would you like me to operate in this moment? And I find so many people get damaged whenever prophetic gifts are given to the church and we rush where angels fear to tread to say something to someone about something that's none of our business. Perhaps God isn't telling you so you have to tell them at all. Perhaps he's telling you so you can pray for them. And here's another little problem with that stuff when the Spirit begins to lead us in that way is you do realize that we often prophesy diagnosis. In other words, you've got this problem. (laughs) You need to sort out your relationship. You need to get out of sin. I've never known God to prophesy diagnosis. Here's what God does. He prophesies prognosis. This is what this could look like. This is what I've asked you to do. We just need to be very careful when we're led by the Spirit that we're not pressing too far towards the thing that God is opening up for us without having dialogue. Every gift that is given to us is so that we will get to know Him better, not so that you could show off how spiritual you are. This is not a you moment, it's a His moment. And sometimes our flesh gets in the way. So we have much to learn in allowing the Holy Spirit to be the leader of our lives. And he has much to show us, which I'm really grateful for. Because as I start to become a good follower of the one who leads my life, I do have uh, opinions, I do have conversations, we do dialogue about things. I'm not a a voice-activated disciple. I do question, I do think, I do inquire about things. I always notice that when I talk with him, his real goal in all of those things that he offers to me in my life is that I would know him better. The spirit of wisdom of revelation so that we may know him. So I don't want to miss getting to know him because I'm trying to function in a gift and operate in something that God has given me. I want to absorb from that moment as much revelation of the nature and character of God as I can. So we're going to talk about a couple of things as we draw our thoughts to a close. 
I hope this has been of some use to you tonight. What does it mean to take the shield of faith? So remember, Paul is not focusing on the wardrobe, the attire. He's focusing on the nature of God and he's inviting us to step into that and lean towards that and abide in that. But how do we take up the shield of faith? Well, of course, the shield of faith is really God's faithfulness. A number of years ago, I was faced with a a very difficult situation and I was trying to walk with God through it and I discovered something about him. I discovered that when I came to him, he didn't seem to answer my complaint. Have you noticed that? You know, I'd come and I'd say, and what about this? And what about that? And blah, blah, blah. And heaven was silent. And my question was consistent. God, what are you doing to me? What are you doing to me? And God in his infinite wisdom never answered that question. And then I realized I hadn't quite crafted the question well enough. My real question really was this. God, what are you doing in me? And when I started to ask that question, it seemed like all the fireworks in my heart and my life went off because God is always doing something in you. There's always a part of his nature, a part of his character. You've got invitations consistently from him to discover who he truly is. And in that moment, I realized that I'd been praying in a manner that actually didn't move his heart. I was praying out of desperation and not out of delight. I was praying out of my wounds and I was not abiding in his wonder. I was trying to operate out of works and God wanted to open up a world where his spectacular nature and personality would become available to me. And it's in those moments that I began to learn some of these things. And it was simply this, that when I find myself in a place where everything seems to be going in the opposite direction to how I want it to be, when my heart is tired and my soul is wearied by my circumstances, I've got to clothe myself afresh and remind my soul and engage my mind and declare with my mouth the faithfulness of God. I've not to come before him with a list of my needs. I'm to come before him with declarations of his greatness, to speak out over my life the reality of his nature and his character. And sometimes, if we're honest, I think we come to God and we've got so many things we think we need to say to him. But Jesus models this perfectly to us in the Lord's Prayer. He says, when you pray, don't start with your problems. Don't get out your list. Don't talk about your hurts. He doesn't invite us to do any of that. Here's what he says, when you pray, Pray like this, our Father, what is that? Remind yourself that you have a Father who commands the universes. 
Remind yourself of that reality. In other words, begin to marinate your circumstances with a better reality, which is the power, the glory, and the person of God. Our Father who lives above it all. Our Father who resides above all dominions, all thrones, all powers, seen or unseen, heard or never heard. You come into a place, not with your problem, you come postured as a son and a daughter, attached to the God who has power and authority over all things. And sometimes we start our dialogue with God with the woe is me's. Oh, woe is me, God, I have the problem. And have you ever noticed that that doesn't attract his attention? Now, it's not that you can't be honest in the presence of God, but what really needs to happen is that your countenance needs to be married up with the reality of his nature and his character. And if you're coming and you're preoccupied with problems, you will never, ever experience the power of his presence because your problems will steal from you the realities of God. So Jesus says, put on the shield of faith. He's meaning cause your countenance to come into partnership with the realities of the faithfulness of God. And here's how I would choose to do something like that. I would say in the midst of adversity, God, I thank you that you're faithful. You have always been faithful to your people. You've always been faithful to your covenant. You have never throughout history abandoned your people. You have shown yourself time after time after time to be faithful on their behalf. God, you were faithful to Moses. You were faithful to Abraham. Father, you were faithful to David. You're faithful to the prophets, Lord God. You were faithful to those who abandoned you. You're faithful to those who cursed you. You are faithful, God. In all your ways, you are faithful. Lord, I lift my voice and I declare that you are faithful. You will be faithful to me. You will be faithful for me. You said that you would never leave. You've never left me, God. I will align my life with your faithfulness. I will allow your faithfulness to become like, like a, a, a shield over my heart and over my mind. It's not some garment that you take out of your spiritual closet and put over your chest. It's the very presence of the fullness of God that you submit to a garment of the reality of his truth. And you hide yourself there. When others abandon you, you hide yourself there. When others forsake you, you pull up the hood. You say, God, cover me with the helmet of salvation. You've always saved me. You couldn't not save me. You're the savior. It's your nature, your character to save God. Come here, Lord Jesus, in all your power. Save me from my befuddled thinking. Save me from my troubled heart. Save me from the people that abandoned me. Pull up the hood. As we begin to declare the reality of the faithfulness of God, as we exalt him, as we clothe ourselves in his faithfulness, we find this starts to happen, that our hearts that were overcome by the story of the world around us become overwhelmed by the God who was in within us. So I've learned some things and I'm hoping they make sense to you tonight. In many ways, it's almost 
a little bit vulnerable for me to share some of these things with you. I hope it's not embarrassing to you, but I believe with all my heart that we as a people, as a, as a, as a church, and indeed in these times, need to understand the realities of this. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves tossed about by all kinds of circumstances. And you know that the devil is not going to relent until he's had his final crack at us. So we've got to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. We've got to put on his faithfulness. We've got to sing about it, shout about it, declare it, prophesy it, remind ourselves about it until we're marinated in it to such a point that whenever something comes against us, we have already a predetermined outcome, and that is this. I don't care what you throw at me, devil. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord because he is faithful to his people. Same is true of righteousness. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. You know, it's not something you take out and you put on. Actually, what we're asked to do is to clothe ourselves with the reality that we are indeed hidden in the righteousness of Christ. That he who is righteous has become sin for us, that we may be made righteous as a result of that. I believe if we immerse ourselves in the nature of God, we find ourselves in prayer and in his presence in a manner that actually is very life-giving. And um, I have a little thought about that. I think <clears throat> I used to pray like a weeping widow. I used to pray with a, a real kind of sense of lack and need and pain and problems. And I feel over the years I've walked with Jesus in these last few years, he's taught me to pray like an expectant bride on the eve of a wedding day. To pray with hope filled, clarity, with certainty, with confidence in his nature and his power and his word and a capacity to abide in hope in spite of the difficulties. And you know, I want to say this, I say this honestly. I used to be quite a negative person. I know perhaps people don't see that. But actually, when you come from the life I've come from, there are all kinds of things that happen to you and they do have an effect on the way you see the world. The world had never been a safe place for me. But as I started to abide in the righteousness of Christ, as I started to remind myself and align myself with the truth of his faithfulness, I found that my prayer life changed. I was no longer praying like somebody who lacked everything. I was praying like somebody who had received everything. My prayer was full of thankfulness and joy and just, God, I delight in you. You're so wonderful. Thank you, Jesus. This is what it means when it says that we have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And you know, you can attract those blessings to your life by partnering with that reality. One last thought before we draw our time to a close. And forgive my voice, it's cracking all over the place. I'm getting a little too excited, but I suppose that's okay. When you're talking about Jesus, it should be okay. But <laughs> Out of that change and posture 
where I was marinated in the righteousness of Christ. And I continue to abide in that. I try every day to spend time thinking and praying and thanking him for his righteousness over my life and his faithfulness too. And, and just about all of the things that are here, actually, most of the time I feel I'm focusing on one for a season and then another for a season. I started to notice that I had an expectancy in my heart that had not been there before. And here's what that expectancy looks like. It's called favor. When you spend your life trying to understand the, the greatness of God, you can't help but believe that in every situation, that greatness is going to turn up. And so I would be walking towards the check-in desk on a flight, and I would think, gosh, they're going to upgrade me. If you're going to have a prophetic word, that's a good one to have. With my huge long legs, I need extra leg room. And you know, as I marinated myself and abided in the righteousness and, and, and the, the faithfulness of God, I found that I engaged with people differently. Instead of trying to find my place in conversation with them, I was finding his face in their lives. I would see the goodness of God in the most ridiculous people. Ridiculous in the sense that if you were to look at them with cynicism, you would think, what? How many of us would have liked the favor of God to be on our lives? What if I told you it already was? And perhaps we just haven't partnered with it. You know, the Bible says he's made you the head and not the tail, the first and not the last. How many of us would like to move from just having theory to reality? To step away from always thinking something's going to go wrong to a place of expecting that everything is going to go right. Now this favor that started to draw my attention to the possibilities of God turning up in places went a little like this. I used to start my day for a season. I say, God, I know you're going to do wonderful things today. You're going to heal the sick. You might even raise a dead person. If I'm anywhere in the vicinity, could I get in on that action? Would you allow me to be part of that? And you know, I found that in the most undramatic ways, I would stumble into places and times and sometimes even people where God was doing something and I just got to see what it was he was doing. There was a time in my life when someone used to get saved every day. In fact, I've just started praying that prayer again recently. Wouldn't it be amazing if you were blessed of God to lead someone into the arms of a loving Savior every day in 2019? 365 people each come into faith in Christ. Wouldn't it be good? You know why we don't expect it? We don't expect that, do we? That's for the evangelists, but actually it's for everyone. It's, for, it's available to everybody because his favor rests upon your life. And if you want to partner with that favor, you need to abide. You need to abide in his presence, marinate yourself in his righteousness, saturate yourself in his faithfulness, be so covered by the reality of God 
that in every room you walk into, you might have a divine appointment by the grace of God. I tell you what, it would move from being just okay to being fabulous, wouldn't it? We'd step away from the occasional high in God to a consistent, incredible journey of discovering how, how glorious he truly is. I think his favor is something that's a byproduct of us abiding and residing and marinating as Paul invites us to, not in some wardrobe with the fear that we might miss something, but in the very nature and the character and the person of Christ. And the Holy Spirit who lives in you to bring life to you is the safest place for you to return to in the midst of adversity. And as you step back into that reality, you start to see the God of glory and his faithfulness and his character and his nature and his goodness. They become your new reality. And then it doesn't really matter how great the enemy is because the God inside of you is clearly greater. Don't clap, I haven't got time. David said, my soul magnify the Lord. In other words, I'm going to lean in, God. I'm going to posture my heart. I'm going to incline my ear. I'm going to open my mouth. I'm going to release who I am in your presence to such a point that you are far greater, far more capable, far more powerful, far more glorious than anything that's trying to come against me. I have a conviction. I believe that this is a turning point year for the church. I believe as we learn with his invitation to enjoy his presence and all that fullness that comes in relationship with God and we partner with him in clothing ourselves in the reality of who God is, our minds will be transformed, our lives will be aligned and favour will outrun you every day of your life. And for a good number of weeks now, I've felt the whispering of the Holy Spirit to come back to some of these truths. And I'm really, really blessed tonight to share some of my story. It doesn't have to be your story, but it is available to anybody who wants it. Where being in the Spirit is not an occasional moment in a meeting, but it's a consistent abiding in the nature, the character, and the reality of God. In a world so full of hopelessness, that makes me the most hopeful man on the planet.